Chapter Twenty Two of Juggernaut, a Veiled Record. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Juggernaut, a Veiled Record by George Carey Eggleston and Dolores Marborg. Chapter Twenty Two. Brain's carriage stops at the door, and he gets out and runs hurriedly up the steps. It is three o'clock, and at a quarter past he has an appointment. He has come home for important papers which he had forgotten. As he enters the door, Dobson says, with some little excitement in his tone, "'I'm glad you've come, Mr. Brain. Mrs.' "'Mrs. Brain?' Edgar suddenly takes the words out of his mouth. He remembers that he did not see Helen in the morning, and that when he went to her door her maid said she was sleeping. Dobson replies apologetically and with anxiety, "'She would not let us send for you.' Brain springs up the stairs. He is suddenly seized with a nervous trembling and stands for a moment in the hall to recover himself. He opens Helen's door. She lies on the divan, and Suzanne, her maid, is moving quietly about the room, adjusting things. At one of the windows a strange woman sits reading unconcernedly. Helen is apparently asleep, but when he enters she opens her eyes and makes a quick attempt to get off the divan. The two women leave the room, and Helen holds out her hands with a smile and says eagerly, "'Well, how are things going?' She is deathly pale, and even while she speaks there is anguish in her face, though she controls her voice perfectly. Even in the supreme moment she will try to be interested. Brain is surprised, relieved. He does not know just what he expected, but he knows that he experiences an almost terrible relief. Helen, her usual lovely, eager, smiling self. Suddenly she sways a little, and Brain throws his arms about her. He says anxiously, "'You are ill. Why did you not send for me, Helen?' She certainly is ill, so ill that her smile is ghastly, but she is conscious of having done her duty and of having appeared interested. She sits down upon the divan, and Brain sits beside her with his arms about her. She replies, as carelessly as the situation permits, "'Oh, no, I'm not ill. That is, nothing special is the matter, you know. There is no need to take you from the Senate.' Brain replies almost sternly, "'If you have even a headache, it is sufficient to take me from the Senate. You have been suffering all day, and have not given me the dear privilege of being near to help you bear it. It hurts me. It suggests a lack of, of faith in my sympathy. She puts her hand over his mouth. Though her words do not indicate it, her expression is one of a happy sort of despair. She would not ask for such an expression of love at this, but it is very dear, very grateful to her just now. It was not expected. Not that he is ever other than tender and loving, but she finds herself surprised and grateful for every expression of his love. She does not know why she no longer expects it, 
or why it is a surprise, but it is so. She catches her breath softly, but does not indicate her emotion in any other way. She has an idea that he will be impressed with her weakness and his responsibility if she shows him how much this means to her. She only says carelessly, Yes, I know, but there was nothing the matter, you see. Mrs. Case is here because Suzanne thought she ought to have a few weeks in which to get accustomed to the house. A few weeks? I don't know, Helen. He looks anxious and doubtful. She says quickly, Yes, yes, Ed, a few weeks, I know, decisively and encouragingly. She has not been honest with him as to the time of her coming peril. She has had one wild desire to have him away, out of town, anywhere, that he may not be worried or annoyed by her, that the approach of the crisis may not interrupt his work. Her tone reassures him, and he remembers his appointment, and that he will be late. He says tenderly, I will be home soon, dear. I have an appointment with Grayson now, but will come home as soon as we are through. She nods cheerfully and says, All right, don't neglect anything for me, Ed. It is not necessary. Isn't tonight the affair at Dalgett's? Yes, but I'm not going. She lays her hand on his arm appealingly. Go, Ed, please go. I want you to. I... Suddenly she stops. Brain thinks, by the expression of her face, that she is dying. It is so drawn and cold in a moment. She draws a long, quivering sigh of agony. Her fingers clutch his arm convulsively. She makes no sound, not the least moan, nothing but that sigh that goes to his heart. Brain watches her, holding his breath. She has slipped to her knees and is clinging with the grip of a strong man to him. He is panic-stricken, horrified, and cries in an awful voice, Helen! Helen! And she lies limp and white in his arms. He is quivering in every limb. He covers her moist hand with kisses. There are tears in his eyes, and he cries aloud with a groan, Great God! Helen hears him and opens her eyes. She smiles dreamily and makes a weak little movement to touch his face. She says in a faint, comfortable voice, It's over now, Ed. Go to Grayson. His face grows harsh, and he says in a sudden fury, Damn Grayson! She smiles. There is a certain comfort in that ebullition. She lies on the divan, and Brain wanders around the room, aimlessly. The languor she feels is possessing him almost. He is oppressed with a sense of impending disaster, and his utter helplessness in face of it. The situation seems to become actual to him for the first time. He feels some frantic desire to avoid this horrible something that must happen. He feels suddenly like a weak, helpless child, and is seized with a desire to throw himself at her feet and weep and be comforted. 
in another moment he feels like a great strong man with a desire to throw his arms about her and prove his power to avert every agony of hers the next moment he is on his knees beside her imploring forgiveness in an incoherent frenzied way for this guilt that suddenly oppresses him he feels like a criminal and keeps saying brokenly oh helen forgive me forgive me she is half asleep and opens her eyes to smile at him she says dreamily i i never loved you as i do now if it had not been for your wretchedness i could have exulted in that agony brain covers her hands with kisses he dares not kiss her face she looks like a beautiful white saint he touches her hands reverently he draws the folds of her gown closer about her presently she says ask mrs case to come here you go downstairs now if you won't go out i will call you if i want you he protests but resistance seems to excite her and he obeys he does not go downstairs however he stays in the corridor just outside her door for hours he walks tirelessly back and forth once in a while he hears that terrible sigh of suffering and he leans heavily against the wall the sweat springs out on his forehead in great drops his suffering seems for the moment as terrible as hers once he groans aloud and at once remembers that she has not made the faintest moan and says between his teeth good god a man could not endure that the nurse comes to the door now and then sometimes calling him in and then he kneels by the still white woman who gives his hands little weak responsive pressures and smiles at him he remains until she motions him away imperatively night has settled the lights are ablaze through the house dobson has spoken to him and said that dinner was ready and he has not heard him he walks back and forth back and forth in the corridor the heavy sighs sob more frequently through the half-open door once mrs case comes and tells him to send for the physician and he gives the order incoherently saying dr frame and tell him to bring some more with him at this mrs case smiles quietly the time passes fitfully he looks at his watch once and it is eight thirty and all is quiet in helen's room in what seems to him but the next moment he hears her make some moaning exclamation and a slight rustling and moving about occurs the agony lasts for what he thinks is three-quarters of an hour but when he looks at his watch again it is only eight forty helen's dog comes to the foot of the stairs and looks up and brain leans over the balusters and looks down at it once he whispers down to it as though it were a human being it's terrible isn't it and walks on back and forth through the hall again the physician came an hour ago brain knows that the nurse has been to her dinner and feels a sudden violent disgust and aversion for her that she can eat 
Dr. Frame did not bring some more, but after a time he comes into the dressing room, where Braine now is, and sends for a colleague. Braine turns pale, but asks no questions as he gives the order. How the time drags! He pauses now and then in his walk and leans weakly against something. He suddenly realizes that his brows are drawn, and his forehead scowled, and his hands clenched, and his teeth set. He is made conscious of it by hearing himself groan aloud, and then he relaxes for an instant, until he hears a sound in the next room again, and he finds himself experiencing so sharp an agony that he throws himself on the divan with his head in the cushions where she has lain. He is in her dressing-room now, and there is an odor of her presence in all the atmosphere. Her gown lies on a chair. In front of the dressing-table lies a twisted handkerchief that tells the story of a moment of agony. He looks about at these things, and says under his breath, "'Oh, my God!' The other physician has been in the next room for a long time now. Brain looks at his watch. It is past three. He tries to think how long this has lasted. He cannot remember whether it was today or yesterday that he came in here. He stands in a half daze in the middle of the floor, trying to recollect when. Suddenly an unearthly shriek comes from the next room. He stiffens like a wooden man. He puts his hands to his throat and makes a peculiar metallic sound. There is silence in the next room. He stands staring at the closed door. He thinks nothing. In a moment he hears another scream that causes his heart to give one wild bound and then to seem pulseless. The silence in the room is intense. He stares fixedly at the door. The stillness is terrible. Gradually he becomes impressed that the woman, Helen his wife, is dead. He does not move. His mind begins to work. He sees a face like the dawn, a primrose face, with eyes as clear and untroubled as a child's, her hair a sunny glory in a little dismal room. He feels the touch of a cool, soft hand a touch as comfortable and calm as that of an angel's wing. Then comes to him the memory of a time when the touch of that hand thrilled him as no other touch on earth or in heaven could do, of the time when the sweet, loving girl became a glowing woman, intoxicating him, making him drunk with joy, and he again experiences that first sensation of proprietorship and possession and suddenly there appears to him the figure of a woman with a ghastly, drawn face, a face that he does not know, with staring eyes that gleam glassily and accuse. He feels the touch of a rigid hand, cold and unresponsive. His eyes seem starting from his head. The door opens, and one of the physicians stands looking at him in a startled way. There is something frightful in this man, with clenched hands, the veins like whipcords on his neck and forehead, and his ghastly face. 
Brain says in a strange voice, Helen lives. The child is dead. End of chapter 22 Recording by Roger Moline